Well, good morning. It is uh, good to be with you, Overlake, and uh, I do want to welcome you here. My name is Pastor Mike. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Overlake Christian Church. We are in the middle of a series called Hot Topics. Today's topic is cohabitation, and uh, a lot of different perspectives on this issue, a lot of different people coming to the discussion with uh, all sorts of different backgrounds and starting points. Uh, I, I just want to say this is a safe place. We welcome you here. What we want to do, as we've done with all of these topics, is go after the topic and bring Jesus right down into the very center of the issue. Bring the heart of Jesus, bring, bring kind of biblical truth, biblical counsel, so that we know where it is that God's word stands, what his will is for us, and we want to go after his best for our lives. So I, I just want to welcome all of you here. Thanks for braving uh, the issue. I want to say that you, you have sacrificed by being here because as you drove here, God's glorious splendor was all around us today. It's a beautiful fall autumn day where his beauty and splendor astounds. So thanks for driving past that. Hopefully you uh, praise Jesus on the way in. We're praising him now. We'll continue to praise him. You might want to grab your notes out of your bulletin as well so that we can follow along. The issue with cohabitation really is a complex issue because it looks a whole lot like marriage. So on the one hand, you have cohabitation. On the other hand, you have marriage. They look really similar. They just happen to not be similar at all. And I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, two things. They look similar, but they are completely different in their nature. Uh, and so uh, it's just a, you know, it's a reality. It happens. Um, Again, my desire is to bring Jesus into the heart of this, to go after a biblical, Christ-centered place. And, uh, and I want to do this without at all being judgmental or condemning. That's not my heart. That's not the journey that Christ has brought me on. So that's not going to be my starting place. However, I will just say on the front end that we will tackle the issue clearly and specifically. We're going to speak frankly about the issue of cohabitation and sex, which is why this is uh, another one of those rated M uh, for mature messages. Now, you're welcome to keep uh, children here. I mean, that's definitely your choice. And certainly, if you, have, uh, if you have students who are maybe in fifth grade, sixth grade, and upwards junior high, high school, you might want them to hear this so that you can dialogue afterwards. That's great. But I just want to give you the choice. Remember that next week's topic is politics, which definitely is rated M, and you don't want your kids to hear you swearing under your breath. So, like, you, you're going to have to figure that one out. Cohabitation, Jesus. The first issue I want to talk about is the issue of God's guidelines for us. God's guidelines. We have to recognize a starting place for God's guidelines, his commandments, his word, his will revealed to us in his word. All of that starts from a premise of love. God loves us. God is love. His commandments have a reason. They are steeped and centered in his love for us. We'll keep coming back to that again and again and again. But I was thinking, God, how can, I, how can I communicate your heart in the issue of you bringing specific guidelines and parameters to this issue? And, and what's just been kicking around in my mind all week long is an analogy. I just want to ask you, by show of hands, how many of you know what a recess teacher is? Anybody know what a recess teacher is at school? Okay, yeah. The, the recess teacher is this amazing person on the school payroll that doesn't actually teach anything. 
this teacher is out on the playground uh, day in and day out, making sure that the kids are playing appropriately, that everyone plays inside of the schoolyard fence, and that no strangers climb the fence in order to prey on the students. When a kid slips off the monkey bars and breaks an arm, which just happened at our school not long ago, the recess teacher is there to comfort and assist. When a kid makes a break for it and tries to flee the grounds, we had a runner last year, uh, the recess teacher is the one who corrals the prodigal and brings him home. All the while, the recess teacher trying to make sure that Lord of the Flies doesn't break out on the schoolyard. That's the recess teacher. Now, occasionally, there'll be students who think the recess teacher is unfair, the rules restrictive, or that the supervision isn't super. But, listen to this. When it works like it's supposed to work, the recess teacher is a figure of love and safety, protection and guidance, comfort and care. Now, I'm not trying to minimize God, so please, that's where the analogy breaks down. But if you could just see his will for us in this regard, he establishes the guidelines, the parameters. He builds the fence around the schoolyard. And his will for us is that we would operate inside of those parameters, and it would be for his glory and our best. And this is the heart of God in the issue of all of these things we're talking about in our series, but specifically in the issue of sex and marriage. So, the Scripture says this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 and following. This is the Apostle Paul instructing a young pastor named Timothy. He says, You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. That's where salvation comes. Timothy had been taught this from his childhood. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. So there's the value of God's Word, His will for us, correcting us, gently rebuking and bringing us back on a par where we are bringing our lives in alignment with God's best for us. Now, it's interesting, the passage starts by saying, you've been taught these scriptures from your early childhood. The truth of the matter is that we live in a post-Christian society, and so in a room this large, we know people are coming from all over the place in terms of your upbringing. Some of you were taught the scriptures from your youth. Others, this might be the first, second, third time you've ever been in a church in your life. You, don't, you have no idea what the Bible might have for you. You have no idea of what God's best might be. And if that's you, I just want you to know, we don't come at this from a judgmental view. It's like, like you should know. You, you know. What we want to do is gently instruct them. We want to bring God's gracious instruction into your life because we also believe that God's will isn't, uh, it's not just best for his glory. It's not just best for society. It's best for you. And so that's what we're going to go after today. God's best for sexuality then clearly states uh, in the scripture, his, his parameter, his framework for it all throughout the scriptures is that sex is a gift, and it is so precious that God has established uh, a fence around the playground. The fence is just this, one man, one woman, and one covenant for one lifetime. That's God's best for sexuality. God values marriage. He prioritizes sex as a precious gift. It is such a highly honored circumstance in God's economy 
that marriage is the only analogy that God uses. It's actually, I, I shouldn't overstate it. It's one of a couple of analogies that God uses to communicate his love for you. In other words, you are called the bride of Christ. And so uh, what we see in scripture is that it is such a precious thing, this idea of marriage, this holiness of the institution, that you are the bride, Christ is the groom, and bringing the bride and the groom together is the, culmin the culmination of history. It's that precious and special. So God values sex and he values marriage. Sex is to be for the covenant of marriage where total commitment has been made by both partners. That's why you might have heard me say this before. Marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. Marriage is 100%, 100% proposition. That's the only way it works. Both parties absolutely committed to one another and to Christ. And again, we're going after Jesus. So here are the words of Jesus regarding marriage. Matthew 19, verse 4. Jesus says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Just pause right there and look at those phrases. The idea is Jesus is saying very specifically, this is a covenant of unity. These two are to come together. Now their histories have collided. Now their future is synonymous. Even their identities are now wrought together. And spiritually, this is a reality. Physically, it's not two bodies anymore, but one. It's a graphic depiction of what happens, what really happens spiritually in this covenant of marriage, in the bond of sex. And so he continues, or, or rather the people that he's speaking to, the Pharisees, push back. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a woman give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted. It's interesting, he didn't command it, he permitted it. He, he made an allowance. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Now, I always want to come with the issue of hope. No matter where you are or what your journey is, it is never too late to hope. It is never too late to step into God's best for your life. And so I just say that because I know some of you have gone through a divorce, and this has been a, a point of pain, and it's been personally very wounding for you. And I recognize that. I just want to say God loves you. He wants to meet you in it. It's never too late to step into his best. But understand, Jesus ends that teaching right there by saying it's not the way that it was from the beginning. Well, what was it like in the beginning? And so I put a verse on your outline from Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. It says, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. A more literal translation of that phrase is they were naked and unashamed. It's not that they felt no shame, it's that there was no shame. Nothing to be ashamed about. They were completely naked, completely committed to one another, completely committed to their relationship with God Almighty, God above, creation below, and a spouse alongside. This is God's best. And it's interesting, they, there was absolutely no shame. This was the world's first absolutely, completely faithful, monogamous couple. And I said in the first service, it's not an irony. There, there's only two of them. So it's not like the rhino was tempting to Adam. Like this was, they were completely monogamous here. And this is a beautiful picture of what God has for us. 
And now, for some of you, I know that this might be review. But for others, this might be the very first time that you've ever processed this. Wait, wait, you're telling me, Mike, that it is a part of God's desire for me to be in an unbroken and beautiful relationship of love with him and have that same relationship, beautiful and genuine, completely love and safe and covenanted with another human being, and that together as we explore love in a covenant relationship, that even sex becomes honored and holy? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Sex is a gift from God to you. Sex is not dirty. Sex is not immoral. Friends, who do you think created it? God created sex. It was not some French guy named Jean-Claude McNasty in the Middle Ages, you know? (laughs) This is God, and he he cares about it, and he loves it, and and, and his gift gift is so precious. He says, so here are the boundaries. Here's where the fence is. Hebrews 13, verse 4 says, give honor to marriage. It's what we're seeking to do today. Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. And so we want to come at this issue of cohabitation again. We want to come at it with grace. We want to come at it with love, but also education. And I know that this issue lands on everyone just a little bit differently. For some, uh, you're coming, you know, and you're just thinking, hey, what's the big deal? Mike, it sounds like you're going to be so old-fashioned in this. Don't you watch Grey's Anatomy? You know, that's your perspective. And then some of you, uh, you're thinking, you know, this isn't an issue for me. I've been married for, you know, X number of years. This isn't even relevant in my world. The reality is all of us. I just want to educate everyone today because this is an issue that comes up and every single one of us has sons or daughters or or friends or neighbors, coworkers, and and inevitably it comes up. I just want to give us just a Christ-centered, gracious framework for how we approach the issue. Okay, I studied a lot this week. I, I did a lot of not only Bible study, but just going after statistics. What are the statistics out there about cohabitation and how it affects culture? Uh, I, I did from a variety of work. I did a couple of Christian research organizations like Families Northwest. And, uh, but I also looked at, at some of just the completely... Uh, you know, the secular institutions like Rutgers University has a huge study on cohabitation, its effects on marriage and culture. Uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services does extensive work on the issue of cohabitation, uh, even like articles like USA Today and stuff. So, I mean, I've, I've kind of gone the, the framework. Here's what I told my wife was so shocking to me. All the statistics point in the same direction. Now, you'll find different studies obviously have different levels of, oh, this one says 72%, this one says 85%, this one says 65%. I mean, you get a little bit of variety in what the actual number is, but every single research that's out there points in the same direction. So that's what I want to kind of reveal to us today and really go after. The first thing everybody agrees on is that cohabitation is sharply on the rise in American culture. It's just going off the charts. I'll give you a quick example. Over the last 20 years, it's risen at least 72% in our culture. Uh, Before 1980s, they were estimating around 500,000 cohabitating couples in America. Today, the number ranges between 5 million and 11 million. So in the last 30, 40 years, it's just gone. Everyone agrees. The statistics from the Health and Human Services 
state that over 60% of women aged 25 to 39 have cohabitated at one point in their life. Over 65% of the couples who have gotten married after 1995 have cohabitated prior to marriage. And so what I want to do is I want to address a few reasons. And again, these are very complex, uh, many different underlying causes and what I call companion causes. But I want to just address the issues. For example, some of the companion causes, underlying causes would be there's a cultural laxity on premarital sex today. So that would make cohabitation more lax, more uh, uh, common. The availability of birth control or even the increasing distance between sex and childbearing. The complete, they're so completely separated, they're not even seen on the same continuum. So what I want to do is tackle a few issues head on. I put a few cultural statements on your outline, and I've simplified these, but I, I, they make kind of a clear point that we can address. The first cultural statement is, I'm just interested in the sex and free rent. Oh, you've got a winner right here, all right? This, uh, this kind of person, obviously, this framework comes from a very selfish, self-centered, self-focused perspective. Uh, if you are here and you find yourself in this kind of a relationship, my counsel to you would be simply end it immediately. End it immediately. Uh, we see, statistically speaking, guys, males, are exponentially more likely to live as serial cohabitators with no drive or ambition, no backbone for commitment or responsibility. We call them adult adolescents. This type of relationship is a drain on all other relationships in a woman's life, especially the relationship with her parents, statistically proven, uh, and a drain on her resources. And again, it can go both ways, but we're talking typically males are the ones initiating. This perspective is unapologetically selfish. It comes uh, from a self-first perspective. The partner is advertising the fact that he's got one foot out the door. And that if a better situation comes along, hotter partner, better house, wider screen TV, I'm out of here. And you might push back, Mike, are there really jerks like this one in the world? And I would say, yeah, there are. We are intrinsically selfish by nature and by choice. And the reason why I know that there are guys like this out there is because before Jesus invaded my life 20 years ago, I was basically this guy. I might not have been a cohabitator, but you know, my framework was exactly like this. And it's interesting to me then when the Bible, the most honest book that's ever been put together, we have the Apostle Paul write these lines. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. He's not saying that rhetorically. He's not saying he's the worst sinner, or maybe your Bible says the chief of sinners. He's not saying that to be self-deprecating. He's saying, I have been saved by Jesus, and that's my story. So the reason why I know there are jerks like this out there is because I was primarily one of them and then Jesus invaded and he changed me. And so I just want to say that, again, I'm not here to judge. I'm here to preach a Jesus who's ready to save. And so if you're here today and you walked in here with an accurate view of your life being that you are an unrepentant, hard-hearted, self-focused, narcissistic jerk, then change. 
Change today. You don't have to leave this place the same person that you came in here as. Jesus is absolutely real, he's absolutely near, and he's absolutely ready to save you and to invade your life and to change the way you come at it. And all it requires from you is humility. Where right now in the silence of this seat, you say, Jesus, would you come in? Would you change me? Lord, I've been on the throne of my life and I want you to be on the throne. Would you help me be the man or the woman that you've created me to be? Can you just do that right now? Okay, that's the first cultural statement we'll tackle. Second one is this. It's a significant step towards life together. Now this sounds like common sense. It really does. But... The statistics bear this out. Living together is actually a statistical step towards life apart. Every single cohabitation relationship can be charted on a graph. 95%, some of the 90, let's just say 90 to 100% of all cohabitation relationships will either end in a two-year period. They'll either break up or they'll get married. This is the vast majority. Now, here's what you need to know, and you might want to jot this down. The divorce rate for couples who cohabitate first, then get married, the divorce rate is between 50 and 85% higher for those who live together first, then get married. 50 to 85% higher divorce rate. That's, that's dire. We all know that the divorce rate in America in general, just taking uh, just a, sort of a 300 or a... 30,000 foot view, it's, there's about a 50% divorce rate in America. But understand that it is being impacted greatly at a rate of two to one, almost three to one, for those who cohabitate first, then get married, then get divorced. You take it all up, and it is so much greater of a statistic that people who cohabitate will either break up in two years or they'll get married, then they'll divorce. I mean, it's incredible. The statistics are overwhelming, and and there are some underlying psychological and emotional reasons for that. And again, if you want to jot these down, I hope they're helpful for you. But when you get into the psychology of the thing, you realize that cohabitating couples are far less likely to deal with tough issues in the relationship. And the reason is because they know that there's a one-foot-out-the-door reality. In other words, there's fear at the very fundamental level. It provides a crack in the foundation of the relationship that we can't address the difficult issues because I'm afraid she'll leave. I'm afraid he'll leave. Commitment level's not there. Second thing, very similar, is there's a failure, uh, and I'm sure it's because of the first thing, but they're far more likely to repress their anger and to avoid criticizing a partner's annoying behavior. Now, we all have annoying behavior. We recognize that is a part of the human condition. And a healthy relationship will simply honestly and effectively deal with, hey, babe, when you do this, this is how I feel. When you do this, this is how I feel. Let's figure out what are the, you know, what are the blueprints here? What are the common areas that we can agree on? But cohabitating couples don't do that. Instead, what they do is they just stuff it down. They repress their anger. It manifests itself in two ways. Anytime you repress anger, uh, it explodes at some point. So that's a part of the reality. You don't deal with an issue. You don't deal with it. You don't deal with it. Finally, it explodes. Or number two, and this was the most shocking to me. I, I never would have picked this. Couples 
who are cohabitating recognize that there's no good communication, there's no honesty in the relationship. They're getting desperate to try to save their relationship, and they see marriage as a cure. And so they get married. If you're married here today, you can agree with me that marriage is incredible, that it is many awesome things, miraculous, wonderful, holy, amazing, even supernatural. I would just tell you there's one thing that marriage is not. It's not a cure for anything, right? So please understand that these are some of the underlying reasons. The third reason is financial, that uh, cohabitating couples fail to develop realistic and satisfactory financial habits. Again, because there's a difference in a single mentality versus a married mentality. And the fourth is that there is a typical struggle with an undercurrent of guilt, either social or spiritual, which inevitably puts pressure on a relationship. So instead of this being a significant step towards life together, friends, cohabitation is actually a significant step towards life apart. Third thing, makes sense economically. And again, this is one of those cultural statements that seems to be very wise. We know that prices, housing prices are high, gas prices, etc. Uh, and so people tend to think, hey, in the short term, this makes sense economically. And it might in the short term. But I would argue that uh, the cost is actually far greater. Uh, the benefits far less. Divorce, of course, costs far more emotionally, psychologically. Equity, equity with children, stability in a children's in the children's home. By the way, and this is completely for free, the amount of abuse in cohabitating relationships is 33% higher than in those with marriage relationships. Without commitment, uh, there's greater distrust economically, and the statistics economically are not good. Here's what's interesting to me about this statistic. When people approach money from a single perspective, they approach it far differently than when they're married and there's one joint checking account. Let me just give you one example. The irony is that in the single framework, the couple will actually encourage each other to be spendy and unwise financially, and then suddenly when they're married, that all changes. And let me just give you one example. Cohabitating couple, Valentine's Day rolls around, the guy says, you know what, I'm gonna go get a gift. He goes out comes, gives her a gift. It's a beautiful necklace. It's all sparkling and gorgeous. And she says, oh, it's beautiful. How much did you pay for it? He says, I, I paid $700 for it, babe. She goes, oh, you really love me. That's wonderful. That's great. Let's get married. Okay, let's get married. So they get married. Year rolls around. It's Valentine's Day. Next year, he does exactly the same thing. He goes out. He picks out something nice. He's there, you know, and he brings in. It's, it's gorgeous. It's glittering. It's beautiful. He, he puts it on. She looks at it. She goes, huh? How much did you pay for this? Is it 500 bucks? 500 bucks? We don't have 500 bucks. Take it back. You know, like, suddenly when you're married, it's totally different, right? You're just like, oh, it's, that's my money you're spending, right? <laughs> Let's rent a movie. Uh, that's cool, you know, like, uh, so the idea, there, there's this economic reality to cohabitation as it uh, applies. God's plan, friends, is actually the best plan. So this is what is universal. Again, I'm going to uh, be honest with, with when I say this is a universal statistical reality. In other words, every single study I looked at, whether it was faith-based or not, research proves this. Statistics show married couples are consistently happier, healthier, live longer, and are wealthier than those who cohabitate or 
those who cohabitate first and then get married. So even though making sense economically seems like it might work in the short run, in the long run, it's a dead-end street. The next cultural statement, I'm not sure this is the one I'm ready to spend my life with. And so let me answer that by saying, sex is the most confusing activity to engage in while attempting to clear your mind. Okay? If you're in a relationship and you are falsely intimate, and by that I mean you are physically intimate, but you are confusing physical intimacy with true intimacy, then you will never be sure if this is the person that you're supposed to spend the rest of your life with, and your chances of breaking up are infinitely greater because you don't take the time to develop the godly conflict resolution skills uh, that you need. At the bottom, it's because if there's no commitment then there's no safety to deal with the tough issues. Friends, the only way you can bring this commitment and this safety into a relationship is by inviting Jesus into it. Okay. Psych Central, uh, again, this is a non-religious psychological site, writes that when couples cohabitate, they have placed each other on an evaluation cycle. In other words, both parties are on trial. And friends, psychologically, again, I get this, it is exhausting to live your life on trial. There's no safety there. So even though it might seem like the right thing to do, it might seem like a clarifying step, friends, it's a confusing step. Even though it seems like it might bring us together, really it's a first step towards bringing you apart. Next statement is, but I really do love this person. And if that's the case, then I would answer, then would you love them like Jesus loves them? In other words, would you commit yourself fully to them? Because Jesus committed himself fully. Would you commit yourself fully? In other words, move out. Get down on your knee and ask her to marry you. If she's the one, she will still be the one in six months or in six weeks when you have had time to plan the wedding or in six hours, if that's what it takes, right? Like, you do the right thing. Love her like Jesus loves her. Love him like Jesus loves him. And I want to say an aside, because I know this question inevitably comes up. Well, what if I have a roommate and she's not a love interest of mine or he's not... Uh, I'm, I'm not romantically interested in him. Or what if we live together, but we're not sleeping together? Well, the Bible talks about avoiding even the appearance of evil. And so I would, I would answer the question that way, that even if you are living platonically, leaving the same apartment, getting into separate cars, going to work, coming home at night, going into the same apartment, the appearance of what's going on is we are living together as a couple. We're living as man and wife even though we're not. You're, it's the appearance of shacking up, so to speak. The other answer I'd give is in the form of an analogy. So you're going to have to bear with me for just a moment. Uh, if you're living with a, you know, a, a person, so here's a guy, here's a girl, you're living together, you might not think that you're interested in one another romantically. Uh, but the deal is you're placing yourself in a proximity where uh, you open the door for all sorts of things to happen. And so here's the analogy. My, my family and I, we have been, we've been without a dog as a pet for a, a, quite some time. It's been over a year, a year and a half. And it's been kind of sad for us, and my kids have been kind of asking, and I've been kind of thinking, man, maybe it's time for a dog. My wife, not so interested. 
So I'm not bringing it up. I don't push. You know, we're just, oh, we're cool. It's, it's good. Uh, so Saturday last, we're out as a family. We did the soccer thing. We went and got ice cream. And as we're hanging out at Barnes & Noble, Jody walks in front of the PetSmart there where they're adopting puppies out. And so Jody, I don't know what's going on necessarily, but Jody, hmm. And so she comes in to Barnes & Noble where we are, and, and she says, uh, she pulls me aside, hey, what do you think about going by the animal shelter today? Just, just checking to see if there's any dogs that we might be interested in. So, Babe, you want a dog? She's like, you know, I, I really, I don't, I'm not ready for a dog. I don't want a dog. Uh, but I just thought maybe we could go check them out. So I said, okay, all right. So I go to the kids. Hey, kids, we're going to go to the animal shelter today. We're going to look at dogs. But listen, we're not saying we're going to get a dog. We're not going to get a dog. We're just going to go. We're going to look and, uh, you know. So I said, oh, okay, all right. And so we go to the shelter and we go in. And the person who greets you at the shelter, this person, it, honestly, everyone there, they're, they're so nice and they're warm and they're friendly and they're gracious. And, and now I see really that that's, that's a cover-up for a conniving, manipulative heart. <laughs> And, uh, and so we go in and we explain, hey, we'd like to look at the dogs. We're, we're really not interested in a dog today, but we'd like to go take a look. And she's, oh, fine, no problem. Let me take you back there. So she takes us back where all the animals are, and, and she opens up this cage. She, I, I think you'll like Scout. She opens up this, this eight-month-old puppy, D- doesn't even bound out, kind of c- crawls out on his belly. And then he rolls over on his back. And my kids are like, oh, look, Scouty. My wife, oh, my goodness, wow, you know, like. We got a dog. Now, there's a moral to the story, and you might want to write this down, because this will haunt you in your sleep. The moral of the story, if you don't want a dog, stay out of the shelter. The wisdom is just gonna, just, it's just gonna uh, astound. If you don't want a dog, stay out of the shelter. Like, yeah, so you're living together. You don't think you're romantically involved, right? You don't think that there's any kind of chance or whatever, but you know what? You had a hard day. You come home, you're stressed. She's depressed. She's had a couple of drinks of wine, you know, or whatever. You uh, suddenly, like, it's like puppy dog eyes looking up at you. And if you don't want a dog, stay out of the shelter. And as I was talking to my wife about this analogy, she said, well, uh, babe, just make sure you're being honest in this, because she knows, before Jesus invaded my life, I had a couple of roommates. She said, uh, didn't you ever have female roommates? I said, yeah, in college. There are two different times I would live, uh, you know, I had a a roommate that was a girl. She said, did you ever sleep with them? I said, no. But if I was drunk and alone, I would have tried. And this is another philosophy that I'm working on. It might come out in a book someday. It's called Guys or Dogs. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be a short book. Now, I am not naive enough to think that everyone who hears this message is going to instantly agree with it, that you're going to instantly agree with me, or you're going to instantly agree with the Bible or you're going to instantly agree with research from shoddy institutions like Rutgers University. (laughs) But I I want to make sure that we're at least generously and graciously coming at what is God's best and why it is God's best. 
See, it's amazing that now the world does all this research, comes up with all these statistics, and at the end of the day, they pile it all in a wheelbarrow, and they dump it out in front of you, and they go, look, you know what? God's way really is best. It really is best to bring him honor and glory and to go after the way that he made us in the first place and the way that he has created us and the life that he calls us to live. It really is best for all those things. It's also best for society. And it's best for you. God really does care about you. And so he, he puts the fence around the playground so that you can know his best and live it. Now, let me address the issue number two. The second issue that I just want to address, and we'll close with this one, is what prevents us from stepping into God's best is the issue of our selfishness. We're the ones who push back against God's best. He's the one who builds the fence. He says, this is what's best. Here's why it's best. We are selfish, all of us, flat out, unbridled. We're selfish. And I mean this generously, everyone, right? We're all guilty of this from time to time. But I know as I call this out, I'm gonna push the bruise for some of you. It's selfishness that goes through your mind even right now that says, oh, I understand what God's plan is and I understand how the statistics play themselves out, but I'm gonna be the exception to the rule. Why? Why are you gonna be the exception to the rule? Because you're selfish. Because you want it to be about you and your preference and your convenience and your pleasure. It's just you. Or it's selfishness that causes some of you to think, well, this discussion doesn't include me because I don't live with my girlfriend, but you're still sleeping with her. And again, you're being selfish because you're putting your pleasure above God's pleasure. You're putting your wisdom, your enlightenment above God's wisdom. And really, it's just you on the throne of your life. It's selfishness that is at the core of this discussion that says, in my relationships, it's all about what I can get, and it's not about what I can give. Or selfishness is the root of how we all frame this question, how close can I get to sin, instead of the question, how close can I get to Jesus? Selfishness is what causes, after we spend a weekend discussing pornography, for some just to blow it off and say to themselves, I'm not that bad, and I'll just continue this pattern of lust, masturbation, and secrecy. It's selfishness that would cause a wife to withhold physical affection from a good husband who loves her and serves her and is faithful to her both physically and mentally even though she knows that she is the one ordained gift from God to this man for his sexuality. It's selfishness that causes people to balk against the the message on alcohol that we spoke last week and continue to seek ways to justify their behavior. Oh, I'm not drunk, just buzzed. Selfishness. It's selfishness that would cause us at any time, anywhere, to resist God's best for our lives because we think we know better. And what's interesting to me is that in this issue, even though I'm speaking a biblical truth right now, that it is selfishness that's the cause, I want you to understand that I'm going to quote the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services right now. 
because they agree that it's selfishness that causes this rise in cohabitation. Stating words like this, and I'm just going to quote a bunch of words they use. Rising individualism, a focus on self, self-actualization, autonomy, personal choice, and tolerance. In other words, when it's all about you, cohabitation seems like a fine idea. You don't buy a car without test driving it, right? Well, it's a fine analogy as long as you're the driver and not the one being driven. But since it's all about you, it works, right? Even Dr. Joyce Brothers gets in on this act. And she says, and I just have a paraphrase, cohabitation is a fine idea like trying on a pair of shoes before I buy them. Which is a great analogy as long as you're the one who's trying on the shoes and you're reducing the other person to a couple of strips of leather for you to wear and discard if they're not comfortable. You see, friends, we're talking about a human being. We're talking about a soul. Like in comparison to a nation, a soul is eternal. A nation's over in a blink of an eye. We're talking about a human a human life that will last for eternity compared to an institution, compared to governments. This, this soul is what really matters, your soul and this soul. So it's important for us to prioritize and to have God's thoughts over this person. We have to go after Jesus. There's no other way to come at this issue. And I'm not trying to bring judgment. I'm trying to bring God's best. I'm trying to focus us on Jesus. I will readily recognize that people who are cohabitating right now probably have some very holy motives in their hearts. And let me just tell you a few of what I would consider to be holy motives. Number one, the desire for companionship, the desire for affection, the desire for financial security, the desire for trust, the desire for sexual intimacy. And I would just say to you, if this is where you are and this is, this is what is driving your cohabitation, I would just say those are good things. God has placed those desires in your heart. Not only that, but God wants to bring those desires to fruition in your life. But instead of you trying to get them your own way by walking your own path, I would just urge you graciously, brothers, sisters, would you allow yourself to come under God's authority? And would you walk the way God wants you to walk? Because he will bring you where you want to go. Again, the analogy that I have in my mind, I, I, some friends of mine just got back from Cabo San Lucas today. They were down in the fun, the sun, 80 degrees. And maybe, you know, let's just use an analogy. Maybe that idea of going down to Cabo San Lucas, that's what, that's what all of these good things are like, right? So you say to God, God, I, I want to go down to Cabo. I want that. I want the beach, the 80 degrees. I want that whole thing. God says, great, I made that place. It's a good place. I'll take you there. You need to go south. And you say, wait, wait, said God, I... <laughs> Yeah, I want to go to Cabo. I just don't want to go south. Uh, I want to go my own way, chart my own course. I'm going north. And God says, okay, well, you can go north, uh, but, you know, you're going to get, like, like icicles, mounties, and grizzlies. I mean, you, you can go north, but you got Canada. And I made Canada. It's a cool place, but, you know, it's sort of, you know, it's nature's junkyard. And uh, I... Uh, I... There's a lot of oil, I guess. Uh, it, the idea is... If you want God to take you to a place where all of his good gifts and all of his blessings are, 
He longs to take you there. But you're going to have to walk with him. You're going to have to go with him. Allow him to lead you and guide you. The idea is we want what God wants, all the good things that God has, but we want to get there our own way. See, that's the selfishness. And God has, the Bible is very clear about, God has given us such good things in this idea of marriage, in this covenant. And so I just want to give you six God-honoring purposes for sex in marriage. And they are these, for pleasure. God desires us to be, have pleasure. His, he is pleased. Number two, children. Number three, oneness or closeness. Number four, knowledge. True intimacy, it's that bond making. And number five, protection. In other words, you're safeguarding this covenant against temptation because it is that precious and God wants it to be held in honor. And number six, affection, that we lavish one another with affection. And the problem is simply this, that selfishness is a part of how we are wired by choice and by nature, but the Christian ethic is not built on selfishness, it's built on selflessness. It's built on being a servant. And so the Christian ethic is impossible without Christ, and so we just look to Christ. What did Jesus say, how did he live, and what did he teach? And this is what Jesus says on the issue, Matthew 20, 27. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Because that's Jesus. So how are we supposed to live? Philippians 2 tells us, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be, what, the same as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, a servant. And I would say that a covenant relationship of love between a servant and a servant is a beautiful marriage and it's a picture of God's best. But you have two people who are very selfish and they come together and whatever covenant they choose to make and call it whatever they want to call it, and that's called a train wreck. God wants to avoid the pain that that kind of path would create. Selfish people make horrible friends, horrible lovers, horrible spouses, horrible parents, and they leave a horrible legacy. But friends, I wanna tell you that God has a better way and a beautiful way. God has a way that there is incredible blessing that, want, that he wants to give us flowing from his character, which is that of love. And so I've asked my friend Danny to come and share a bit of his story with you today. Would you please welcome Danny as he comes? Good morning. Uh, Mike asked me to share my story today, and I'm honored he would ask. I'm a little curious, though, to see how he ties it all together, since I've never cohabitated with anyone, uh, unless you count Pastor Jesse, and I don't. It's a long story involving our college band. Anyway, uh, uh, I was raised in a fairly normal Christian home with very loving parents who taught all of us kids that God's best for life involved waiting until marriage to have sex. I can't tell you how many uh, virginity is cool conferences I went to or how many purity covenants I signed, but I do remember making a very sincere commitment to embrace God's plan by waiting until marriage. As a part of that, I believe that living together or spending the night together, even fully clothed, was not a good idea. This wasn't really an issue for me during high school until I left for college. 
uh, going away to school with my girlfriend at the time, the option of staying the night at her apartment became a very real temptation. Uh, even though we had many late nights together and long makeout sessions over our five-year relationship, uh, by God's grace, we never had sex or undressed each other. Uh, Jesus had other plans for us both, and we ended up parting ways with no regrets or guilt about our sexual purity and thankful that we both had our virginity to give to our future spouses. Uh, that definitely wasn't the end of the journey for me. I was now in my mid-twenties. There was nothing holding me down. I was a red-blooded, steak-eating American male in my sexual prime, right? I'm like, yes. And it became harder and harder to not have sex before marriage. Uh, I moved far away from my family, pursuing a music career, and I really, really like girls. And being the only single guy of our band, they seemed to really like me. Uh, every night, myself and other single friends would go out after work and look for attractive girls, uh, yet somehow Jesus always reminded me of my commitment to him and to purity. It wasn't always easy or fun, and it started to get really old. Uh, I would often come home to awkward sounds of my roommate and his girlfriend in their room as I went over to my room by myself. Uh, this wasn't so bad for a while, but soon I started to get really lonely and wonder why I was waiting and holding to these standards if it didn't seem to be paying off. How was I going to find someone in their late 20s like me who was still a virgin? Maybe it wasn't that big a deal. As my 29th birthday came and went, I really started to question everything. Did God want me to be happy? Did he want me to be alone and celibate for the rest of my life? Uh, why had I remained faithful if I was just going to end up alone? A lot of my friends were living with their girlfriends or having sex, and they looked happy. Then the movie The 40-Year-Old Virgin came out. <laughs> Dude, that's going to be me. Sucks. Uh, just when I felt that things were never going to change and that maybe Jesus wanted me to be a monk, I, uh, I met a beautiful Italian girl named Rachel, who was also a virgin. Meeting her flipped my life upside down. <clears throat> two months after my 30th birthday, we were engaged. And two weeks ago, we celebrated our one-year anniversary. <laughs> and I can honestly say that she was worth waiting for. In the enjoying our marriage bed department, we are making up for lost time. And all of my friends, especially Jesse, are jealous. <clears throat> uh, I've never felt so much love and grace and favor from Jesus. <clears throat> As I do when my wife tells me she loves me. The fact that both of us were able to give ourselves 100% to each other without bringing anyone else into our bedroom with us has been such a beautiful gift. We are both so free and present with one another because there's no guilt or regret. When I think of how beautiful my wife is and how amazing our sex life is, and it's pretty amazing, <laughs> uh, I'm so thankful that I can say that when you choose God's best, you really get God's best. And God's best is so much better than anything we could ever ask for or imagine. Thanks.
Well, I want to end this message where we started other topics, and that is in this place that we simply recognize that Jesus loves us. And I'm so thankful uh, for Danny's story. I'm thankful that he shared. I really did think this was one topic that you wouldn't cry over as you shared, so I, I was wrong. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, I just want to end because Jesus loves us. That's why there's a fence around the playground, because he loves us. Because Jesus loves us. Now, you might be thinking, you know what, I've already blown it. Well, guess what? He loves you. So that means there's grace, right? That means there's grace. And that means even today you can step into his love. Even today you can say, Jesus, what would you have me do right now? You can change. He's real. He's here. And he loves you. So you have a son or a daughter who's cohabitating. You have a friend, a best friend. You have a, your next-door neighbor, your coworker. You're talking with folks. What would you do? You know, my prayer is that you'd bring the heart of Jesus in to the discussion. My prayer is that you'd, you'd have the discussion. You'd love them as you had it. You'd bring the love of Jesus into it, but help them understand it's because he loves us. It's because he loves us that there are, there are fences around the playground. All right, let's pray. We want to say, Jesus, thank you for caring enough to die on a cross so that we might have life I want to thank you that the life that you have for us is not half life. It's not sort of life. It's not kind of good. Jesus, the blessing that you want to give us is full life, life that is truly life. And so, Lord, what we, what we do, and I have a feeling every one of us in the room right now is bringing our lives to you. And we're recognizing where we're selfish. We're recognizing where we have strayed off of your best for us. And Jesus, we're asking you to forgive us. We're asking you to bring us right back onto that, that pathway. We love you, and we thank you for all of the gifts, all of the blessing that comes as it pours out of your character, the character of which is love. And so, Jesus, we cling to that love now. In your name we pray, amen.